Chapter Twenty of Trails End by George W. Ogden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Unclean. Earl Gray came down the street hatless, the big news on his tongue. Rita Thayer, in the door of the headlight office, where she had stood in the pain of one crucified, while the shots sounded in Peden's hall, stopped him with a gasped appeal. Dead. Peden and the gunslingers he had brought there to kill Morgan, any number of others who had mixed in the fight. Morgan himself, all dead, the floor covered with the dead. That was the terrible word that rolled from Gray's excited tongue. And when she heard it, Rita put out her hands as one blind, held to the doorframe a moment while the blood seemed to drain out of her heart, staring with horrified eyes into the face of the inconsequential man who had come in such avid eagerness to tell this awful tale. People were hastening by in the direction of Peden's, scattered at first, like the beginning of a retreat, coming then by twos and threes, presently overflowing the sidewalk, running in the street. Rita stood staring, half insensible, on this outpouring. Riley Caldwell, the young printer, rushed past her out of the shop, his roached hair like an Algonquin's standing high above his narrow forehead, his face white as if washed by death. Impelled by a desire that was commanding, as it was terrifying, moved by a hope that was only a shred of a raveled dream, Rita joined the moving tide that set towards Peden's door. Dead. Morgan was dead. Because she had asked him. He had set his hand to this bloody task. She had sent him to his death in her selfish desire for security, in her shrieking cowardice, in her fear of riot and blood. And he was dead. The light was gone out of his eyes. His youth and hope were sacrificed in a cause that would bring neither glory nor gratitude to illuminate his memory. She began to run. Out in the dusty street where he had marched his patrol that first night of his bringing peace to Ascalon, to run, her feet numb, her body numb, only her heart sentient, it seemed, and that yearning out to him in a great pain of pity and stifling labor of remorse. It was only a little way, but it seemed heavy and long, impeded by feet that could not keep pace with her anguish, swift running to whisper a tender word. The lights were bright in Peden's hall. A great crowd leaned and strained and pushed around its door. There were some who asked her kindly to go away, others who appealed earnestly against her looking into the place, as Rita pushed her way, panting like an exhausted swimmer through the crowd. Nothing would turn her. Appeals were dim as cries in drowning ears. Gaining the door, she paused a moment, hands pressed to her cheeks, hair fallen in disorder. Her eyes were big with the horror of her thoughts. She was breathless as one cast by breakers upon the sand. She looked in through the open door. Morgan was standing like a soldier a little way inside the door, his rifle carried at port arms, denying, by the very sternness of his pose, the passage of any foot across that threshold of tragedy. There was nothing in his bearing of a wounded man. Beyond him, a few feet, lay the bodies of the two infamous guards who had been posted at the door to take his life. 
Along the glistening bar, near its farther end, Peden stretched with white face to the floor, his appealing hands outreaching. A gambling table had been upset, chairs strewn in disorder about the floor, when the rabble had cleared out of the place. Only Morgan remained there with the dead men, like a lone tragedian whose part was not yet done. Rita looked for one terrifying moment on that scene. Its tragic detail impressed on her senses as a revelation of lightning leaps out of the blackest night to be remembered for its surrounding terror. And in that moment Morgan saw her face, the horror, the revulsion, the sickness of her shocked soul. A moment, a glance, and she was gone. He was alone amidst the blood that the curse of Ascalon had led his hand to pour out in such prodigality in that profaned place. Long after the fearful waste of battle had been cleared from Peden's floor, and the lights of that hall were put out, long after the most wakeful householder in Ascalon had sought his bed, and the last horseman had gone from its hushed streets, Morgan walked in the moonlight, keeping vigil with his soul. The curse of blood had descended upon him, and she whose name he could speak only in his heart had come to look upon his infamy and flee from before his face. Time had saved him for this excruciating hour. All his poor adventures, slow striving, progression upward, had been designed to culminate in the mockery of this night. Fate had shaped him to his bitter ending, drawing him on with lure as bright as sunrise. And now, as he walked slowly in the moonlight, feet encumbered by this tragedy, he felt that the essence had been wrung out of life. His golden building was come to confusion. His silver hope would ring its sweet chime in his heart no more. From that hour she would abhor him and shrink from his polluted hand. He resented the subtle indrawing of circumstance that had thrust him in the way of this revolting thing, that had thrust upon him this infamous office that carried with it the inexorable curse of blood. Softly, against the counsel of his own reason, he had been drawn. She who had stared in horror on the wreckage of that night had inveigled him with gentle word, with appeal of pleading eye. This resentment was sharpened by the full understanding of his justification, both in law and in morals, for the slaying of these desperate men. Duty, that none but a coward and traitor to his oath would have shunned, had impelled him to that deed. Defense of his life was a justification that none could deny him. But she had denied him that. She had fled from the lifting of his face as from a thing unspeakably unclean. He could not chide her for it, nor arraign her with one bitter thought. She had hoped it would be otherwise. Her last word had been on her best hope for him in a place where such hope could have no fruition, that he would pass untainted by the bloody curse that fell on men in this place. It could not be. Because he had taken Seth Craddock's pistol away from him on that first day, she had believed him capable of the superhuman task of enforcing order in Ascalon without bloodshed. Sincere as she had been in her desire to have him assume the duties of a peace officer, she had acted unconsciously as a lure to entangle him to his undoing. Very well, he would clean out the town for her, as she had looked him to do, sweep it clear of the last iniquitous gunslinger, 
the last slinking gambler, the last drab. He would turn it over to her clean, safe, for her day or night, no element in it to disturb her repose. At what further cost of life he must do this, he could not then foresee. But he resolved that it should be done. Then he would go his way, leaving his new hopes behind him with his old. Although it was a melancholy resolution, owing to its closing provision, it brought him the quiet that a perturbed mind often enjoys after the formation of a definite plan, no matter for its desperation. Morgan went to the hotel, where Tom Conboy was still on duty, smoking his cob pipe in a chair tilted back against the post of his porticle. "'Well, the light's out up at Peden's,' said Conboy, feeling a new and vast respect for this man, who had proved his luck to the satisfaction of all beholders in Ascalon that night. "'Yes,' said Morgan wearily, pausing at the door. "'They'll never be lit again in this man's town,' Conboy went on, "'and I'm one that's glad to see him go. "'Some of these fellows around town were saying tonight "'that Ascalon will be dead in the shell inside of three weeks, "'but I can't see it that way. "'Settlers will begin to come now. "'That hall of pittance will make a good implement store. "'Plenty of room for thrashing machines and harvesters.' I may have to put up my rates a little to make up for a loss in business till things brighten up. But I'd have to do it in time anyhow. Yes, said Morgan, as listlessly as before. They say you made a stand with that gun of yours tonight that beat anything a man ever saw. Three of them down quicker than you could strike a match. I heard one fellow say, Man, look at that badge of yours. Conboy got up, gaping in amazement. Morgan had stepped into the light that fell through the open door, passing on his way to bed. The metal shield that proclaimed his office was cupped as if it had been held edgewise on an anvil and struck with a hammer. Morgan hastily detached the badge and put it in his pocket, plainly displeased by the discovery Conboy had made. Bullet hit it square in the center, Conboy said. It was square over your heart. Keep it under your hat, Morgan warned speaking crossly, glowering darkly on Conboy as he passed. "'No niggers in Ireland,' said Conboy knowingly. "'No niggers in Ireland.' Morgan regretted his oversight in leaving the badge in place. He had intended to remove it long before. As he went up the complaining stairs, he pressed his hand to the sore spot over his heart, where the bullet almost had driven the badge into his flesh. "'Pretty sore.' but not as sore as it was deeper within his breast from another wound, not as sore as that other hurt would be tomorrow and the heavy years to come. End of chapter 20